Welcome back, folks. Good to have you with us here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Uh, we are jumping into our local roundtable. On the way there, I want to remind you, the Mark Steiner Show is brought to you in part by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, offering a full range of financial services. MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, has been helping its members and its community prosper for the last 80 years. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. And remember, it's a credit union, not just a bank, belongs to you, and money comes back in the end. More information at www.mecu.com or steinershow.org is MeQ, Baltimore Credit Union's banner. Jumping into our local roundtable, Denzel Mitchell remains in the house. Always good to have him here. Let's see if we can get him uplifted from this conversation. I don't know that's going to work. <laughs> Jessel Norris in the house as well, who is reporter and producer for The Real News, covering a lot of stuff going on in the city. Good to see you, Jess. Thanks so much for having me on again, Mark. And you all can join us here at 410-319-8888. Uh, you can tweet us at Mark Steiner. You can also email us at talk at steinershow.org. But do call in 410-319-8888. So let's just begin. You know, we've covered this a lot, and I hate covering ground the same ground over and over again. But, you know, when we see what's happening in the streets of Baltimore, um, that, that, and we keep saying we cannot police our way out of this, and you've been covering this with some intensity uh, and doing some really good work, Jess. Um, what does that mean? When we, so if, you're, if we're facing... Let me take a different tact here than I usually do. So if you're facing, in a community... Young men and women, especially young men, with really lethal weapons who open fire on the streets, uh, innocents are shot and killed, uh, people in the trade or in the life, as people say, are usually the targets, and policing is not the answer, but you have these lethal weapons all around us, what is the answer? So, Mark, you said, you know, we've been talking about this for a while, yeah. and and. I, that's absolutely true. You've been talking about this. You know, community's been talking about this, grappling with this issue. Right. But I think it's important to keep talking about it because the problems aren't going away. And what we're doing obviously isn't working right now. Um, but I think, so obviously, we need to get the guns off the street. We need to get people to stop killing each other. Um, but we also need to look at why this is happening, right? We need to get to the underlying, the underlying issues, right? right. The underlying right. problems. And... And um, I think it's important to talk about the history of the city and it being the first city that had a residential segregation law. Um, you know, um, there's a new book out called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And he talks about how segregation in this country is the result of explicit government policy, mm -hmm. unconstitutional policy. And the effect was it concentrated poverty in cities like Baltimore. Um, at the same time, policy also provided white families an opportunity to get out of poverty and to, to build wealth, which is, which is the, the, you know, there's an income gap, but also there's a wealth gap. And, and what it means, I mean, what it means today is you can't, you can't live, some people do it, but you can't live in Baltimore without seeing the huge disparities in this, in this city. Uh, there's a White House study in 2015 that found for every year you grow up poor and black in Baltimore, you actually lose 1% of your adult yearly income. So this city actually sucks wealth out of young people in the city. And so, you know, you ask why people are hopeless, why people are willing to kill each other. And there's, you know, that ultimately is, is the answer. There's just been generations of denied opportunities. Um, and no one's taking, no one in power is really taking responsibility for it. And I mean, so Rothstein book covers a lot of ground that, you know, we all, I think most of us are aware of now, but the point he makes is that it's unconstitutional. What happened is unconstitutional. Right. So for that reason, the government must, must remedy it and must, you know, must address that. And so that's really, I mean, so I think we need to keep talking about it because we need to get people on the same page about the root causes. And then once we raise awareness, then we can start talking about what solution real solutions look like right. well, I, well said that yeah that was absolutely perfect i would just posit one thing that during um the era of segregation there there were public and private policies and decisions made to take away more op these small opportunities whether it be land ownership or um, um home ownership or job promotion 
or economic opportunity, those things were whittled away because it was a publicly held policy amongst the uh, d- dominant class to take this away from take this away from from black folks. And so that, you know, that that would have been to me, that would have been the third piece mm-hmm. that <clears throat> would have led led us to where we are. And so, as you said, that that needs to be remedied. There needs to be a conversation. There needs to be a collective agreement that um, that, you know, essentially we need, you know, there needs to be some reparations. Um, you know, there needs to be some restitution. We we all know, you know, any educated person knows that this has happened, that this is that this is what the history of this country is. But as you said, nothing has been done about it. You know, we've we've talked about it. We've sat here on, on this radio station and talked about it. Nothing has been done. You know, schools have been defunded. Schools are segregated. You know, no one disagrees with that. You can see it. I mean, it's not it's, no, it's not like you're making making up something. Um Charter schools, and you know, to some extent, are a form of segregation. Um, you know, that stuff needs to be remedied, and we're going to continue to have violence and inside of of these highly concentrated areas of poverty as long as none of that stuff is is remedied. I mean, people are hungry. You know, people are sick, and as a result, this you know, this is how this is how you behave. And the problems are amplified, right? right? The problem right. you, you go. I went to. Um, I was visiting a school, Renaissance Academy. Yeah. Actually, the same day I interviewed yeah. uh, Rothstein on his book, I went to this high school where three three students were killed last year. I, I spoke to a group of twelve, um, you know, high school high school students. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them, except for one, had a family member that's been incarcerated. Um, had knows someone that's been shot. I mean, because their classmates were killed, right? Mm-hmm. Family members that have been shot. It's, some several of them recounted experiences where they had barely escaped being shot, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and and you talk about you know how we got here. These communities are living in intense levels of trauma. You don't know if you're going to make it to school every day. You don't know if you're going to survive school every day. You don't know if you're going to make it home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that that compounds that compounds like these these same issues. Right. And now we're con- now and now we're contending with the idea that the public officials that our parents tax tax dollars or you know are the tax dollars that we're that we're using are being spent to protect us they might kill us right they might kill us or they might kill somebody we know um and so now and so they're in our communities as another occupying force or someone for our children to be scared of <clears throat> and you know and so now you you and so now that level of trauma is now even more compounded so you're you're afraid of the people that you live near and around your neighbors but then the folks that are supposed to be protecting you you're also afraid of them as well i i've been open the phone so i just got word also carl, carl stokes is with us um former city councilman now running the manacle blake academy of arts and science good to have you with us carl hi mike how are you doing guys good good hey carl so let me open the phones here 410-319-8888 gene you're on the air welcome Good afternoon, guys. Or I guess it is afternoon. I hope it's <laughs> almost not quite. Not quite. But uh, I know it's close to noon. It's a good day to you. Uh, uh, I have kind of two things to, to catch on. Um, I think I thought the second one was going to be about can we police our way out of this, and I was going to address that in the sense that we, we have to change the culture. We always hear that, and one of the ways has anybody ever seen the movie Pulp, Pulp Fiction? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And so we know how. Drugs are used in a white community. That's a, they gave a great example of how it's used. In a black community, it's not used like this. So I think that a strong police presence will force people to do business a different way, if nothing else, you know, in our communities. Uh, I'm not saying that, that it's right or wrong to use drugs, but we can deal with that by legalizing it and making it available to people who are hooked and then that way they don't have to deal with the predators or who, you know, who bother them. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing, too, now, you, know, you got on... Um, you know, segregation, et cetera, and we should, we are educated and we should know the, the reason. And then housing, uh, we do know that there's uh, anti-discrimination laws to protect people, uh, you know, wh- where they can live and where they can buy and so forth. But remember in Brown, it, it was established that housing w- was not uh, to be considered when it came to segregation, housing patterns. So in other words, basically, you know, not just white people, but affluent people could build communities and literally be legal, be uh, not guilty of discriminating. Mm. And that's, that's built into, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education. I mean, that, you know, that's part of the education system. So when we try to solve our education problem, 
discrimination is legal. Am I wrong or right? I'm on the, on the right uh, Well, let's, let's get into um, that. So, so I think you raised really two really good points. Let's, let's, um, let's hit on the housing issue first. Um, you're, you're correct about that. Um, but what, uh, what is forgotten, I mean, what's, what's not been really talked about is that federal policy created segregation even when it didn't exist. For example, when they built public housing in Richmond, California, this is the first chapter of, of Richard Rothstein's new book, Color of Law, there was no segregation because no one, it's a suburb that wasn't even created. Mm-hmm. Um, they created segregation there, which is unconstitutional. That's why... I mean, so this, what I'm saying requires, this is like a new interpretation of the law. It has, this hasn't really been argued for 50 or 60 years, but because federal policies were unconstitutional, that's why the Constitution needs to be, re, you know, we need to go back to this. We need to go back 100 years, 150 years, and say black people were treated like second-class citizens, and we need to remedy that. So that is that the Constitution is needs to be rewritten. Yeah. We need to update our system. Yeah. You know, it goes back to the conversation. Like, oh, the system is broken. Yeah. No, the system's not broken. It was created this way. Yeah. It's like no one, no one should be surprised that this is what we're experiencing in 2017. It was written. It was created this way. Yeah. You had a class of people who were considered second class citizens. Nothing has been done to remedy that. And so what we see now and the and the governments and the government officials' response to those same those those groups of people is the exact same. So let me call, let me make sure I jump in here. Let me just also add I I, I would try to look at something a little fast as you all were talking as well. I mean I, I don't think there's anything in Brown about housing, the, the decision itself. Um, right. I mean there, there have been things written recently about how our housing segregation is leading to segregated schools. Um, not legal housing segregation, but de facto. But de facto, mm-hmm. right, be, right. Because of how we, we structure by both class and race, what gets developed, who gets to live where. So what, so what Rothstein argues is that there's a myth, that the, the, idea of def, the idea that it was primarily self-selection, mm-hmm. private, right, private companies, right. that, that wasn't the primary fact, that wasn't the primary driver of it. And because it was intentional government policy, to, that created segregation, that maintained it. Um, even when they built public housing in like Atlanta, um, Detroit, Chicago, Chicago, right? right. They actually, Baltimore. Baltimore, they actually, right. what they would do is they would demolish integrated, integrated neighborhoods. That that's where they put public housing, which was at first exclusively for for working class white families. Mm-hmm. Black people were kicked out of those neighborhoods, and they were put into slums. And then the white families that used to live there were allowed right. in the public housing, and then they were allowed to move to the suburbs. To the suburbs that were created yeah. in the 50s. Yeah. Right. Right. And, right. and go ahead, Carl, jump in. I mean, a generation before Carl Stokes, um, even. In Baltimore, uh, black folks actually lived in the alleyways and white folks right. on the main street. Mm. It, was a, it was a housing was very different those days. We go ahead, Carl. Yeah. Let you me jump in. Then yeah, we'll... yeah, you're, you're making a good point, Mark. You're right. I mean, the neighborhoods were integrated. The neighborhoods were integrated, but in the way that you mentioned, you know, that the the workers, the domestics, the uh, people who are uh, are doing the uh, menial jobs were living in the, as you said, the alley streets and the alleyways. Um, so yeah, this whole uh, thing of uh, legal segregation um, and. You know, I really like to go off on a tangent about reparations, but I'll—I guess I won't on this show. Uh, but you know, people ask in great surprise, why should we owe anything to anybody? Uh, we didn't do it. Uh, we weren't a part of it. But actually, you were a part of it because um, you claim that heritage, and you're a part of it now because much of what uh, white folks have gained in America has because is because of the legal segregation uh, that has taken place for over hundreds of years in the, in the, in the country. So that's my two cents at this point. And uh, uh, the, the last caller also mentioned the, the drug war. And, um, I mean, that that is something that we can look at right now, and, right. and it's a way, you know, um, with policies like safe injection sites, like decriminalizing marijuana uh, right. and, and all drugs, like they, do, like they do in Portugal, right? right? And I don't think people right. really understand that because, right. you know, we had um, Tony Barksdale on, former uh, deputy commissioner, um, on a panel with uh, Neil and a few other guests. And afterwards, uh, he, he uh, gave me permission to talk about this. But afterwards, Neil told him, and so this is someone that, this is Tony Barksdale, someone that the son calls when they need someone who is going to be like pro-drug pro, pro drug war, go after the bad guys, right. need more police in the street. 
And, uh, you know, Neil was telling him about, uh, you know, they're closing down prisons in Europe, right? Mm-hmm. They're treating right. it, they're treating uh, drug addiction as a public health issue. They're, addicts aren't afraid of the police. Police refer them to treatment. They get help. Mm-hmm. Um, they're able to buy drugs without, right. you know, at, at a low price, and they're able to be functional. They don't, they don't get bankrupt. They don't get homeless, and they're able to get help. Right. And right. something as simple as that, which is profoundly different than what we, we do here, that could make a huge impact. That could help reduce violence. That could help right. ease a lot of the trauma and the stress that is happening all over the city. That's why it's always it was disheartening today when I was watching two of the Democratic um, candidates for governor both saying they're not prepared to say we should legalize marijuana yet. I mean, it's just crazy. Right, well, that is crazy. That, that, that's very progressive of them. Isn't yeah. it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then I think we have to we have to we have to say. I mean, I think legalization is a great first step. But look what happened in Colorado, right? Mm-hmm. They right. legalize people, but but um, and I think the fight that the uh, the the uh, congressional the uh, the black delegation is um, is doing is right. Legalization has to tie into reparations too, right? Because. There's still black black people are still locked up in jail for these same crimes, right. and now they have to have an opportunity and to make money off it because otherwise, right. like in Maryland, right. all the all the dispensary licenses went to white, to people. white, to white people, people with money, to white people with money. So it's right. only further exacerbating the same right. cycle. As, like, as, yeah. yeah, right. I mean, it, 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 the logical thing would be that to take the folks who were dealing it illegally who are yeah. in prison, free them, teach them how to run a business, yeah. and allow them yeah. to be in the legal end of the business. Yeah. Your thoughts? Well, if uh, go ahead. If I could just say quickly, Mark, it would be a great, great service to America, frankly, if all of those records, Absolutely. now that we understand that uh, drugs, addiction is a health problem spread beyond uh, the black community, it was intentionally put, as we know, so this is not some theory in the uh, uh, Carl, we, uh, if you're on your cell, we're kind of losing you in and out. Carl dropping some science. We need him right now. <laughs> Come on, man. So, I'm sorry. I, don't lose me, brother. I'm, I, I got a few more years left. <laughs> 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 so let, let, me, let me open the phones here. We, we lost a little bit of what you had. But, it, you know, he, his, so, his idea, I mean, there needs to be rac- retroactive expungement. Of of people's records, if, if you're allowing right. if you're allowing industry to make money off of marijuana now, then every single person that has any criminal charges for marijuana possession, they 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 their records need to be expunged and they need to be forgiven. I mean, nobody should be making money off off weed if somebody's locked up yeah. right now for weed. That's right. ridiculous. And we're absolutely so ridiculous. we're talking about tiffs for Port Covington. <laughs> what about tiffs? For All people right. that are locked up, yeah, and get them, get them, get them a business going. Let them employ people in the community right, that right. need work, that so, have criminal records, that can't get housing. So how, how, how I, I really want to explore in the time we have here, the last forty minutes. I mean, so we, we talk a lot about the history of segregation, the history of racism, how that affects today's world, but so what, and what affects and how it affects the city we live in right now. Mm-hmm. But okay. Let's say our analysis is correct, and I think it is. <laughs> then, 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 where do we go from here? I mean, what does that? Going back yeah. to my original question, yeah. if it's not policing, what is it? It's also, I mean, that where do we go? <clears throat> what are the things we're positing that have to be done? But let's go to the phones first at four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. And Terrence are on the air. Uh, thanks for having me. Welcome. And, uh, just to um, kind of go back to your question, just stated um, about us being able to. Not being able to keep our way out of um, the situations going on in Baltimore, I think we need to take a really long, hard look at mental health and behavioral health in Baltimore mm-hmm. um, City, particularly with our children. Um, I know a lot of you, um, a few of you spoke about uh, schooling, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm of the mind that if you have the best school in the world, but the children there aren't equipped mentally and emotionally to learn, um, it's not going to be that effective. So I think we really need to look at the mental and behavioral health aspect of our city to actually move forward because clearly policing isn't doing its job. Yeah. Absolutely, and that, that's another point that uh, yeah. um, that Rothstein raises in the book. He sa- I asked him about, I, I interviewed him, I asked him about underfunding. Is that an issue with the budget cuts? He argues the biggest issue is the hyper-segregation of high-need students right. because t- teachers are more social workers than actually being able to, to teach. Right. Um, and so, you know, even if you know, so per, per people funding for Baltimore is actually on par with the wealthier the wealthier school districts. But you but you need so much more 
than that. You need wraparound right. services. You need, you know, pre-K. We know pre-K, just universal pre-K right, right. can that, make a huge difference. And After, that's the thing. Yeah. If you, what the term having the best schools in the world means is that you have a school that deals with the child holistically. That's the problem. It's not about what's happening inside the classroom. You're sending your child to a building, and they're going to be there from 8 to 10 hours a day. It's not just that they sit in a desk a desk, and hear somebody talk. They need someone to deal with their mental, emotional, physical, spiritual needs throughout the day the same way a parent would. And it's like if the schools aren't doing that, which they're not, we know that they're not, then it's this, the schools are not doing their job. And, you know, so like you said, it's wraparound services. You know, there, there need to be a safe, safe and educational uplifting place for kids to go yeah. at three, you know, because parent, you know, at, or even younger, because if we, as long as we have a working class um, contingent in our community, they got, you know, the, those parents need some place to go and they yeah. can't afford, the, you know, they can't afford these you know these wonderful daycares so there needs to be universal pre-k care um you, you and 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 holistic education food education um outdoor education physical education art education music education and none of that stuff most of that stuff is not happening and you know if you're if you're a parent working three jobs to make ends meet how much you know three three minimum wage jobs to right. barely make ends meet right how much you know how often you're going to be able to be able to be around for your for your for your kids, right? That's why passing the minimum wage would have had a dramatic impact mm-hmm. uh, in the city. I don't, I don't think that's been that's been pound the mayor. I don't think has been held uh, to I, account no, enough. No, especially since during the campaign she said she would yeah. back it. And and also, you know, I, I challenged her on this, and she there's her spokesperson told me stop asking questions about it. She doesn't want to take any more questions about it. But um, her <laughs> arguments were totally flawed. You know, she said jobs are going to leave; they're going to go out to the county. Um, that's never happened before. There's been 80 years of research on the impact of raising a minimum wage in a city higher than the surrounding jurisdiction. That, that, that has never happened before. Hmm. Um, and it, it serves the – we talked about the system actually working like it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. I mean it's, it's in the business interest to keep wages low in the city. Mm-hmm. Because then they can make a bigger profit right. off, off people's labor. She's right, not right. taking questions on this thing. Well, that's yeah. interesting. Carl, you have a comment before we go back to the phones? Do we lose Carl? I'm here, Mark. Yeah, I, I don't. Um, but I, I just want to mention, uh, this is a, obviously a problem of poverty, which you guys are already mentioning, because in fact, traditionally, it is not the role of schools for wraparound services. Mm-hmm. We have had to take it on because our children and families are so poor. Mm-hmm. This is really something uh, families uh, traditionally would have tried to do. It is something government should do truthfully education and educating students in a safe environment is the role of schools but teachers can't teach because children need mental health services they need physical health services they need to be able to have eyeglasses so they can see their behavioral issues because some kids have emotional issues so the schools are now having to take all of that on and so when we talk about the cost of schools they're underfunded, not just because we can't pay teachers, but because we cannot afford the wraparound services. Or, put another way, we've decided not to uh, pay for those services. Mm-hmm. we take a short break and come right back with our three guests, Tom and Ernest. The next two callers up at 410-319-8888. Tweet us at Mark Steiner. Send an email to talkatsteinershow.org. We shall return. Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner. We are here with Jessel Noor, who is reporter and producer for the Real News Network, Denzel Mitchell, who is an educator, father, farmer, justice advocate, Carl Stokes, who is the founder of the Banneker Blake Academy of Arts and Science Middle School here in Baltimore, and you all are 410-319-8888. Write to us here at talkatsteinershow.org. Uh, you can also tweet us at Mark Steiner. And let me go right to the phones and get some thoughts in here. Calvin, Tom, Ernest are coming to your calls. Calvin, you're on the air. Welcome. Yes. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Calvin. I just want to insert a thought in reference to uh, what uh, Carl Stokes mentioned uh, about the wraparound services being available and it not being the responsibility of schools to do it. And I bring to the thought what Jeffrey Canada did in New York with the Harlem Children's Zone, where he organized uh, services, social services, uh, well-baby care, uh, created uh, a K through 12 
uh, school for the children and got the buy-in of their parents to participate in all the services that were needed for uh, for their children, bringing social services and everything into one place, and the success that they have had graduating students where their entire class uh, went on to college. Just want to hear your comment. So uh, it's it's important what you raise here, and I, and let's talk about this for a minute. I I think that that. That that's the kind of stuff we're, that that when you raised during the break, Denzel. So, you know, what do we do? Um, it, rather, it, it, things have to change. So the question is, that's just it. I mean, the idea that 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 has to be pushed to people in power here in Baltimore is that you need to have a holistic approach. Mm-hmm. We have to put money in the school system, not in the police department. Create wraparound services. Decentralize the social services and other things so they're inside the schools, community schools where they're twenty four seven, open from six in the morning to ten o'clock at night. <laughs> right, right. I, I mean, that's I think th- that's I think that's part of it. We also have to, you know, even if you're graduating top of your grade or you know going to college today, mm-hmm. um, is there a job for you in in this current economic market? Like you need mm-hmm. to give people a reason to go to school, to stay in school. Like you need to also think about that. How do we how do we get how do we employ people in this city mm-hmm. with with sustainable jobs right give them a reason to not drop out of school because they actually have a better future if they stay in school yeah i hear that and i think that's yeah. true but in terms of how we handle our young people in this community and work with them if we don't change the nature of how our schools operate there's no hope for any of that you know what i'm saying i mean so yeah. but we also can't change no, we, schools can't Schools can't fix poverty, right? Schools can't fix poverty, yeah. but schools, the, the proper system of working with young people yeah. in community hours can save children's lives and educate children so that they're prepared to deal with what f- they face, so they can face and fight for what they want. Mm-hmm. Maybe, and we don't do that. You know, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's like, you know, when people say, why do you do yoga or meditation um, in schools with kids? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's so kids have the inner strength to deal with what they face every day. Right. So you can't, I mean, so, I mean, you can't like dismiss, I think, the notion of how to reform our school system as key to what, to how we put our hands around our children. And I, I think, I think, I think it's do both side by side. And what, you know, the, the caller mentioned uh, Harlem Children's Zone, that school raises a hundred, it's raised a hundred million dollars on top of the, uh, oh, they, yeah. also, right. they, they also get the, the 10,000 per, per people funding. Mm-hmm. That the school gets, but they also they also raise that money from private from private sources, right? Mm-hmm. So so that is really the answer. That, that's what's going to need. Right. Schools right. are going to need a hundred million dollars right, right. on top I, of what on top of what. Yes. I, and I just want to pause it uh, just because I think he misquoted uh, Mr. Stokes. He's, Mr. Stokes said that schools are trying to do that. They shouldn't have to, but they are trying, and ultimately they're underfunded and understaffed to provide all the needs that that. The, the children need. And so, you know, so to go back to your point, Mark, you know, I, I, I believe that this conversation is indicative of what the um, of what the answer is. <clears throat> we should not be talking about the police. Right. The police are not a part of this conversation. We can't police our our way out of the violence that is plaguing our communities. But we can we can provide the health services. We can provide the educational services. We can provide the opportunity to change our community. The police the police have a job to do. They're not doing their job. That that's clear. And they are they are um, unjustly um, killing and maiming the people that they are here to protect. So so they need to step aside and there there needs to be some other institutions that are serving serving the community for the for the greater good, the the greater pro- progress of what it is that we want to see. It's not this is not a police issue. This is a public health issue, this is a public education issue, you know, this is a public trust issue. So Carl, let me let you jump in. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. The police are fifth or sixth when you think about how do we solve uh, public safety issues? How do we have a stronger city? The police rank fifth or sixth mm. in, in that equation. In any city, you look around the country, and police budgets are a tenth of the, of, of the budget, and education is 50 to 60 percent of the budget. Look at any other county in, in the state of Maryland. It is unconscionable in the city of Baltimore that we continue to spend 
two and a half to three times as more as much money on police issues and policing as we spend on young people and the vulnerability of communities in this city. It is just unreal. If at any point, Mark and, and guests, if we just immediately took a hundred to two hundred million dollars from police and spend it in the right places, we would not break out into a situation that could not be manned. It actually would grow better. So people would say, Carl, if you take two hundred million dollars from the police right away, the whole place will fall apart. That's not true at all. <laughs> I mean and I think I think what you're saying is exactly right, and you can see the impact of publish of public consciousness being raised, right? Because in this in this the mayor's budget this year, she said for the first time we're spending more on other things than police. Mm-hmm. And whether that's actually true, people have debated that. Mm-hmm. But but we now have a mayor who is responding to public to the, the public outcry and public pressure of the fundamental priorities being mm-hmm. different. And we talk about, you know, what a few million dollars can do, right? Look at safe streets. Right. They've reduced violence by, you know, 50% at the very minimum in right. in the communities that they've been the, implemented. The mayor wanted to cut that. The city council fought back. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they, they increased police overtime. They doubled police overtime. It was already $19 million. They gave, gave them the surplus $18 million right. more right. on top of the $480 million budget, right? So what if we spent that money and gave people jobs, get them off right. the streets, give them jobs, give them job training, get, make, give them a living, living wage, which you can't really make on the drug trade. Right. You know, right. how many, you know, if you have the opportunity to have a career and have a job and have, you know, and have time to spend with your kids, how many people are going to get off the streets? I mean, how many it, people it, are going to give hope see, to? We have to be in, I'm going to open the phone yeah. to you. A lot of people yeah. called in. I'm going to get to all their calls in the next 20 minutes. So let me jump into that. But let me just say that Part of what you were saying earlier, Jessel, and a conversation I had earlier, I mean, late last week, after a session I ran um, at at, uh, at the University of Baltimore, is that we have to think differently about economic development. Mm-hmm. What you just mm-hmm. said, supposing you had a deal with the unions in, 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 in the Baltimore metropolitan area, and the city took the houses it owns and raised the capital through banks, however they raised the capital, through bonds, to rehab those houses, that becomes a training program for mm-hmm. people in those neighborhoods mm-hmm. to learn the skills to be in those trades, mm-hmm. to rebuild the city over a 10, 20 year period, right. giving people the work they need to do to make a decent living so they can take care of families, rebuild their neighborhoods, mm-hmm. so you can have doctors and lawyers and carpenters and electricians living next door to one another right. yeah. in the same community right. and have a really okay. different notion of what economic development right. means. So you do not give the money to Port Covington. Yeah without their guaranteeing that X number of houses, X number of jobs, all go to the poorest people in this community. Right. We have, that's what you have to demand. Right. You have yeah. to demand a right. different way of looking at economic development if and, we're going to survive. And the Baltimore Housing Roundtable has already proposed that, right? That the 2020 plan, there'll be $40 million a year for, um, for rehabbing homes and hiring people to fix them. And then, and then um, another $40 million um, to uh, give people that give uh, get people in those homes, people from the community that can't afford. You know, housing is one of the one of the biggest causes of stress and instability right, in our communities. Right. There was this great expose on rent court, right, 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 which is right. almost <laughs> exclusively poor black women. Mm-hmm. They're getting you know uh, their kids are getting lead poison, their roofs are leaking, they're living in dangerous conditions, and they and you know consistently they're getting either thrown into the street or they're get, being forced to pay um, for these horrible conditions. Right. Have right. to move around, amount of you know, right. move all around the city. Rent court. Yeah, their, their kids are stressed. Losing yeah. wages. Yeah. And oh. people are losing the yeah. time in school and lower grades yes. because they're stressed out about yeah. the yeah. housing, stu- so all that. Oh. <laughs> Let me open the phones here again. 410-319-8888. Uh, let's go to, uh, in this order, Tom, you're on the air. Go. Yes, good morning, Mark. Good morning, Tom. Uh, uh, I'd like to address the uh, crime rate in Baltimore. I'm thinking about 300 murders a year. Uh, as you know, my son was number 199 in 2015. I remember that. I couldn't get my head around that. I'm trying to get my head around 300 murders. I have an engineering background in construction inspection, and I'm used to making measurements. And to me, the most striking thing I see on television and the newspaper is crime scene tape. So I tried to do an estimate of how much crime scene tape was used in a year when you had 300 murders. I figure 22 foot in the front across the street. Most murders are on the street. 22 foot in the front of the street, 22 foot at the other end. 
at minimum of 30 feet on each side. It comes to 110 feet. If you multiply 110 feet times 300 murders, it's 33,000 feet. If you divide that by 5,280 feet in a mile, that's six and one quarter miles every year when you have the 300, 300 murders. And uh, I took a compass and an ADC map, and I scaled off six and a quarter mile. I stuck the pin of the compass right in the center of Morgan State University campus and drew a circle. The circle in the north reaches to Timonium. The circle in the south reaches to the foot of the Hanover Creek Bridge in Fort Covington. And if you were to take and stretch that tape out six and a quarter miles and put a ribbon on it every 110 feet to mark murder, and you walk an average speed of three mile an hour, it would take you better than two hours to walk it. And every 25 seconds, you would pass a ribbon marking a murder. Wow. That's how I got my head around it. But that, that, it's that, that, that's amazing, Tom. Uh, I think that it's also, that is also a living art project. That... To, 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 to understand I'd be the curious. immensity of the problem that, that the city faces and the lives we've lost. I'd also be curious to, to ask you, do you know how much that, that tape costs? How much are we spending on that? What was that, sir? How much are we spending on that okay. police tape? <laughs> Hello? Yeah, go yeah. ahead. Tom, I, I really appreciate the call. Oh, that, that was, uh, can you hear me, Tom? Yes, I can, sir. I was just saying, it's, I, I, appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the call and the thought. Well, thank you very Thoughtful. much, sir. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean that was that was. Uh, I can that that, that, was, that was a pretty striking visual. That was a very mm. striking visual. Mm. I appreciate it. And I remember Tom called in when his boy was killed. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight. Let's go to uh, um, McConan. You're on the air. Hello. Um, Good morning. Good morning. Could you turn down your radio, please? Can you go ahead? Yeah. My question is about uh, vocational education and vocational skills. We're talking about education and improving the school system. And I'm interested in getting your thoughts on the impact of, of vocational education. And that way, it's less of a worry about having to uh, find jobs and employment for uh, individuals when they come out of school because it trace them with the opportunity and the skills to create their own opportunities and create their own jobs for themselves and for some of their, their friends and neighbors in the community. And um, so I just really want to advocate that when we talk about some of the, the issues that can, that can uh, well, some of the solutions that can resolve some of the issues, that we look at putting back real vocational education training back into the school. So when you graduate from high school, if, if college is not an option for you right away, you're still equipped with the skills to earn a living. Right. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I was going to say that, but, you know, the, the conversation kind of went in a different direction. I, I'm a firm advocate in uh, believing that by the time you graduate from high school, you should have you should have some certification in some vocational skill. Um, and, I mean, if nothing else, um, you, you know, you, you uh, create an option uh, to, to have a business or you have, you have a trade. If, you know, if, like you said, if you're not ready to go to college yet, you can go and work in a you can go on and work in the field. You can create a business off that trade, <clears throat> but um, ultimately, if if there is um, if there is some some sort of uh, you, you know you have a skill set that gives you the confidence um, that you can use your hands. That you know you, you you can use mathematical skills. You can use communication skills, um, um, and um, you, you have a much more uh, uh, pragmatically educated working class of people you know this notion that uh, people come out of high school and they can only do one thing I mean it's just it's just ridiculous and I think every Baltimore City high school student should finish high school with some sort of vocational some yeah. sort of education that's what we need to be doing in the summer instead of having kids sit around yeah. and hope that they go to the library and then and then to match that why not have something like a New Deal program where the government is employing people mm-hmm. if, if the private market Despite how many billions we've given to these you know, corporations to right. create jobs, which has not, not happened, why not have a government program to fi- you know, right. train people, fix homes, fix the streets, right. build playgrounds, you know, b- build mental right. health centers, which we need in every neighborhood in the city. Right. And, and, and people would argue work. that we have that with AmeriCorps, but the problem is, is that uh, most kids that go to, the, that go to uh, um, high schools in poverty-stricken areas don't know don't know how to navigate that system to to join Peace Corps, join AmeriCorps, or join Peace Corps, yeah. right? And so that opportunity is not afforded to them. You know, you you know, I've I've been in schools, worked in schools where some some kid that just graduated from high school in Indiana or something somewhere, you know, it has this great opportunity to serve their country 
in Baltimore City, you know, but there's thousands of kids that are graduating in Baltimore City that don't know that this is an opportunity for them. They can join in Triple C and and go build um, uh, trails in some park somewhere and learn um, geography, learn topography, learn construction. I mean, you know, you know, there is a system of segregation that exists in this country where some people are afforded opportunities that other people are not. And that needs to be that needs to be destroyed. It needs to be done away with. So let me go back to the phones here. Also, there's an email from Jeff Singer. We're going to try to put a show together with him in the coming days. Mm-hmm. Let me just that we know that um, uh, Hudson Secretary uh, Carson is coming to town mm-hmm. Wednesday. Wednesday. This yeah. Wednesday, visiting Baltimore Wednesday, June 28th, uh, and he'll be speaking at the Henderson Hopkins Public School on Wednesday afternoon, where there'll be a demonstration. Um, now we'll be talking more about this tomorrow or on Wednesday show. Um, but he 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 writes here that with the cut that HUD's going to bring to this town, rents will be increased from 30 to 35% of attendance income, public housing. Minimum rents are increased by $25 to $50 a month for people with no income. We'll stop assisting tenants with utility costs, and there's more. So we're going to be, and the National Housing Trust Fund is going to be zeroed out. All this under Ben Carson as... Secretary of so we've been talking about how to reduce violence. This is a great plan <laughs> to, to increase, uh, violence. increase violence, increase instability. You want to um, throw people into the streets. You know what impact is that going to have on our schools that are already so strapped and and dealing with so much instability? That's that's an absolute outrage. I think we should all be outraged right now. Yeah, we all should be outraged, and people should be out on the streets demonstrating yeah. when Ben Carson hits town on Wednesday afternoon at the Henderson School uh, over by Hopkins Hospital. I will be there. I'm sure you will be there. I'm sure you will be there, brother. I know you will be there. So let me, before we go back to Carl Stokes, let me get back to the phones of 410-319-8888. Kim, as in Kim Trueheart, you're on the air. Welcome. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Kim. This is a very rich topic, um, and uh, I'm thankful for it. Thank you. Um, The state gives Baltimore City about $15,000 per child Mm -hmm. school year. Um, at Liberty Elementary, we only receive about 7,000 of that 15, right? And mm. so the principal there and I have, have calculated that we really need about eleven to 12,000 per child to mm. give them the quality of programs that they really need. So that difference of $4,000 is up to the school and the community to raise. So we write grants, we do fundraising. Um, My newest initiative is called the Liberty Village Project, where we often talk about it takes a village to raise a child. And what we're trying to do is is actualize that. Um, We've raised, um, uh, through the Village Project, about $20,000 so far. Um, And we have programming activities. We had a wonderful music program after school. Um, I just encountered a young lady who's an engineer with Lockheed who started a program, a STEM program, where she's teaching kids how to repair and build dirt bikes, um, electric dirt bikes, not gasoline-powered ones. And, you know, I'm trying to help her, give her space to run her program in. Um, we're doing some fantastic things as a community, but as your guests have said, why is that necessary? Why aren't public funds being allocated in the amounts needed to serve our children? Um, they don't get these kinds of extracurricular activities um, on the basic budget, right? It's not affordable. Mm. We look at the 115 um, city school staff who were laid off. They're counselors. Right. So you had someone talking about how kids need to know what their options are with, as they're graduating. And, and vocational um, schooling is something that, that is not high on the priority. The, the, the high school and the choice process here in the city mm. that has the longest waiting list is Mervo, right? Not Poly, not Western, right? It's Mervo. Right. Mm. Kids are lining up to get into Mervo a vocational high school. So we've got to push, you know, while the mayor has, has she says she's raised $100,000 for youth entrepreneurship, and the example she's using is the squeegee boys, right? 
and she's going to set them up doing car washes around the city. That's nice, but that $100,000, it's got to be greater than that. He's got to throw some money into the pot. Kim, thank you, Kim, as always. Thank you, Kim. Glad your voice is out there as well. Mm, Squeegee Boys Car Wash? Squeegee Boys Car Wash. (laughs) I haven't heard that. (laughs) Have you heard that one yet, Carl? No, I haven't, but I'm ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) David Miller tweeted in, what do you do when you realize that a large segment of city residents experience trauma and stress daily? So... um, that's, that is what we're talking about here. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, uh, go ahead, Carl. I was just, no, not special. I would say that is what we're talking about. We're talking about, uh, it, it's true. Uh, most kids are experiencing much greater trauma than, than you or any of our panelists today. Mm-hmm. They just, every day, it's in the home or it's just outside of their it's door. Their it's door. PTSD. Uh, yeah. Right. It's, it's post, it's. Yeah. Right. That, that kind of level. That's right. So you're and in a war zone. Someone just called in asking what I mentioned earlier. What I'm saying to you is that HUD, HUD Secretary Carson um, is scheduled to visit Baltimore this coming Wednesday, June 28th. He'll be speaking at Henderson Hopkins Public School on Wednesday afternoon. And people are trying to organize a demonstration yeah. outside there. To run him out of town, please. <laughs> so so that's, that, that, that's what it was. We're going to try to cover this. Uh, either with a show we'll tape tomorrow to air on Wednesday, um, if we can't do it tomorrow, or on Wednesday. But we're going to get this on the air so we can talk about it and have the people on. Um, and maybe yeah. he, He'll be there at 3.30 p.m. Um, at Henderson Hopkins. It's 2100 Ashland Avenue. See? That's a reporter journal. So look, look at her. He's popped up already. My man, Jessel Noor. So 410-319-8888, who's been doing some remarkable work. Uh, let's go to Ernest Joe on the air. Hey, good morning, brothers. How are you doing today? Very well. Good morning. Hey, artist. Uh, I think a huge part, <clears throat> first of all, there's been so much that, that has been brought up since I initially called, and I don't even know where to start. <laughs> um, but a huge part, like, number one, people talk about our founding fathers would be upset at how our country turned out. And like you said earlier, they are just, they probably would be blown away at how far their system has gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're not rolling over at all. They're tap dancing. You know what I mean? They're, they're celebrating that. But aside from that, one thing that is missing from not just ours, but the world over, but we'll focus on Baltimore and America in general, is a respect for life, human life and just life in general. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Kids need to be taught that his life, her life, matters just as much as yours. You know what I mean? And when you have that understanding, it's like, like all of us understand that. The ones that are calling into this conversation understand yeah. that you can't treat people like this. You know what I mean? That this is unacceptable. And there's a huge swath of the population it just doesn't get that. A cop would think more than twice about killing someone if he respected that man's life. You know what I mean? Like, on a huge scale, that's an issue. And that goes down to education. If you respected those people, you would give them the money they needed to educate their kids and to make sure that they can flourish as a people because you respect them. You know what I mean? There, I was watching a thing on Finland the other day with their schooling. The kids don't go to school for more than three hours a day, and that includes lunch and recess. Mm-hmm. And they are the top country in the world, and everyone's happy. Every teacher, no matter what teach, no matter what subject they taught, their prime concern was teaching the kids to love and respect themselves. Even the mathematics teacher, number one goal was to get you to love and respect yourself and your your surrounding classmates. You know what I mean? That's a whole different priority than what we have. We just want you to take a test. <laughs> I, I know we're I know we're almost out of time, but I want to say I totally agree with what you're saying and. I think what's also key is under it's what our the history is not being taught in the textbooks. It's not being taught in schools. Mm. So, for example, the history of what I talked about earlier, um, public policy creating segregation, that's not taught in schools. So, right. growing up, you know, growing up, you're taught that you it's your fault your right. community looks like this. Right, it's right. Your, your responsibility. Right. Therefore, you have failed. Right. All this but, ended in 1966. Right, it was all over. Yeah, all yeah. Done. Fair Housing Act, right? Fair Housing yeah, six, Act, sixty-eight. Voting Rights Act in sixty-five is all done. So that's this why we need now. to rewrite those textbooks and you know explain to young people today: it's not your fault. It's not a result of your action. It's a result of unconstitutional policy, right. and that you should not. You know, you sh- you're the, the victim of this. And we start the conversation there, and we talk about how to fix it. I mean that 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 was the heart of the course that I taught at UMBC. Mm-hmm. 
So why are you not teaching UNBC now? Why are you on the radio? Should <laughs> 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 be teaching young people right now. <laughs> Mark, we need, we need to make a curriculum about this and yeah, we do. spread it. We do. Because yeah. the, the teachers want to teach this too because they know it too, but it's just not in the history books. It's not in the textbooks. Mm -hmm. so it's, All right, Carl, what are you going to say, Carl, before we have to wrap up? You got a final thought for us? No, sir. I think this got the, one of the best panels I've ever heard you had, Mark, excluding myself, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is a, this is a good crew, um, and I, I think that that you know we, we are only going to change this when we get to the get under it and really understand what, you, what mm -hmm. you're saying, Jessel. We have to understand our history. We have to understand what, how we got here, mm -hmm. and to understand how we change it and and really and really change and demand it that's why you know the the movement is bubbling and i think that there that, that that you can feel it i think you can feel it in a very establishing sense for the with the young people who were the younger people who were elected to the city council who i think mm -hmm. are real beacons of hope some of them mm -hmm. on this council mm -hmm. who are not pulling punches about what they believe mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to do it inside the system mm -hmm. there are people out in the community whether it's folks organizing in communities united be more block all kinds of organizations in the city that are really out there trying to do the work, somehow it has to coalesce and it has to come together as a serious political movement that can push the kind of change that needs to happen. And we can't, you know, I mean, we just can't keep losing. And when, I, when I say educate uh, education, I'm not even just talking about young people in school today because they're not really the problem. No, no. It's about the middle, cl the middle class, about the yeah. upper classes in this city that need to take responsibility for, for their actions mm -hmm. and understand that their wealth, their privilege was on the backs of other people in this country, right. and they need to accept responsibility for that. Right. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's yeah. it's where we have to. Caller right wanted to state that children are leaving their houses every day with the fear of being mm -hmm. killed. How can they focus on education with that being on their mind? The caller just left that message, and I wanted to share that with everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. true. That's true. Um, and that goes in every, every school in the city just about. Mm -hmm. And the kids are terrified. We don't, we don't understand the trauma these children live through every day. Yeah. And uh, imagine having to learn right. on an empty exactly. stomach and right. not knowing if you're going to, you know, make yeah. it, make it, make it home. home. You know, you talk to students. They say, they say goodbye to their moms every morning like it's the last time you're not going to see them again. Right, right, right. Wow. How do, you, how, do you learn, how do you learn with that in your right. head? You know? And on that note, Jessel Noor, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Mark. Reporter and producer for Real News. You've been doing some really good work. Really good work. Some of the best work coming out of that place is coming out of you. Um, <laughs> Denzel Mitchell, always good to have you in the house, man. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you, brother. I'm glad to be here. Carl Stokes. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Banneker Blake, Academy of Arts and Sciences founder. And thank you all for calling in and writing in and tweeting in today. It's great to have your thoughts live on the airwaves here on The Mark Steiner Show. We'll keep this up until July 31st when they're going to try to run us out of here. Anyway, The Mark Steiner Show is a production <laughs> of the Center for Emerging Media. Our producer is Imani Spence. Our associate producer is Calvin Perry. Production assistant is Nadi Ramlagan, who is leaving town. It's good to have you with us. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Our editing producer now is Ali Post. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our theme music is by Wall Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org and the podcast at Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. Mm -hmm.